And we are back here in Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM. That's 93.3 on the FM dial here in Hamilton. You can catch us on the rest of the world at cfmu.ca because we're streaming online and you can get us Kojiko, channel 288 on Kojiko. It goes to the radio. Now, today we've got an interview with Stephen Gowans. And this is, of course, the Ottawa-based author, journalist, blogger, and political analyst Stephen Gowans. I think we have him on the line right now. Steve, are you with us? I'm here, Brendan. Hello. Hi, Steve. Um, Listen, uh, our listeners may know already because we've announced it for the past four weeks, you are going to be in Hamilton coming soon on Monday, October 28th at 7 o'clock p.m. And that's going to be at the New Vision United Church. And we have you launching your brand new book, which I have with me, and that is, I got it right here, Israel, a beachhead in the Middle East, from European colony to U.S. power projection platform. Uh, This is a book that's obviously about how Israel serves imperial interests, how and why it's allowed to exist uh, with such privileges from the United States, and it's to investigate its role over the past 60 years or since or even before its uh, official formation in the late 1940s. Now, I've done a number of interviews about Israel and books about Israel and Palestine on this program. Um, There are some similarities, some areas of overlap in your book, although yours focuses heavily on Arab nationalism and Israel's role with regard to the other countries in the Middle East broadly. And I noticed that there's at least two major themes in the book. And one of them is about a kind of marriage. You can call it what you like, a marriage or an alliance of convenience or whatever. But you have on the one hand, a specific group or subset uh, within the Jewish community, within Jewish people. And then you have people who manage empires, whether it be the British Empire or the U.S. Empire, and it seems like there's a confluence of interests. There's a a common interest, and they're able to work together. And it's ideological, it's political, it's economic. So when we're talking about similarities here, what are the common interests that allow this this political Zionism among Jewish people to cooperate or collaborate with Anglo-American empire? Hmm. Okay, that's a big question. Well, you know, let me let me help break that down for you, because you have some very good examples early in the book. And, you know, first of all, before we do anything, I want to commend you on the introduction, because it's a very clear introduction. It's just four or five, six, seven pages, but it lays out so much of what the book is about, it makes it very easy for the reader. And the whole book is written very clearly, and it's structured in a logical way, and we, we're going to follow that structure a little bit. In terms of the, the introduction, you look at anti-Semitism in Europe, and you look at how European societies, which were themselves colonialist uh, and racist, they discriminated against Jewish people who sought recourse through various methods. There was socialism, this universalist project uh, where people can be equal and minorities are treated equally in societies. And there were other projects like this this right-wing Zionism, of course. And this was a more pessimistic project. So you have people like Theodore Herzl saying that Jewish people cannot live anywhere with non-Jewish people, with Gentiles. And you also have anti-Jewish attitudes among the ruling classes from Russia to Poland and Eastern Europe all the way into France and 
Britain. So you have the examples of Theodore Herzl and people like Winston Churchill, and they kind of had a lot of views in common. Don't you think? What, what were some of the things they might have in common? Yeah. So maybe I should just back up a bit and say that Theodore Herzl, of course, the founder of political Zionism, so the idea that um, Zionists, Jewish Zionists, those seeking to establish a Jewish state in Palestine, should seek the sponsorship of a European power. And Herzl was realistic. Um, he knew that if he was going to, if, if, first of all, um, he thought that this project would only succeed with the sponsorship of a European power, um, that if he was going to obtain that sponsorship, he would have to point out that there would be benefits to the European power. And he came up with a list of benefits. Uh, this is going to be this Panglossian project. That's what I call it, Panglossian, because in Herzl's view, everyone would benefit from some European power establishing a Jewish state in Palestine. He said, first of all, um, for the Europe's ruling class, one benefit would be that you would rid Europe of the principal agitators for social change in Europe. He said, you know, Jews are the people who, Jews are, are, are socialists, they're committed to socialism, uh, they're behind every kind of upheaval that's ever occurred in Europe. They're a threat to the European ruling class. So the European ruling class should benefit from um, their exodus from Europe uh, to Palestine. So that was the first benefit. The second benefit is he said a, Palest or a Jewish state in Palestine could protect European interests in the Middle East. So there's another reason to sponsor a Jewish state in Palestine. He also thought, because he believed that anti-Semitism was ineradicable, that it was almost an inherent part of human nature, that um, the non-Jews of Europe would be quite pleased to see the Jews leave and go to Palestine, so they would benefit too. And finally, he thought that the Arabs of the Middle East would benefit, those who would be displaced, that they benefit because Jews would bring to them civilization. Um, so, uh, he was always, uh, I mean, his intention was to offer benefits to the European ruling class, and um, he recognized that a Jewish state could only survive with the sponsorship of some kind of imperialist power, and that continues through to today. I mean, Israeli politicians recognize that they cannot survive without the support of some imperialist power. And they've also always sought the support of imperialist power uh, throughout their history. Now, you talked about Churchill and Herzl. How are they the same? Well, Churchill and Herzl, as you mentioned, were both part of this political right or this kind of reactionary uh, tradition that opposed um, the movement for universal equality or the political left. Um, so while we had Jews, there were some Jews those, you know, the ones, the agitators for social change that Herzl said he could take from Europe and place into Palestine, um, they had this grand vision, a grand vision of equality, um, and their vision of the solution to anti-Semitism was to build a world of universal equality where all oppression would be overcome. They had a grand vision. Uh, now, 
how are Churchill and Herzl uh, the same in their attitudes? Well, they both saw Jews as a race rather than a religious community. They both saw Jews as alien to the countries in which they live. Um, they both saw Jews as the main agitators against the established order. So Churchill called them the international Jew, those who are agitating for a world of universal equality. Um, and he wasn't the only person who used the phrase international Jew. Hitler talked about the international Jew, as did uh, Henry Ford, who established the Ford Motor Company. And this is the idea that there were groups of Jews, usually communists, socialists, anarchists, who were agitating for the end of oppression in a society or a world of universal equality, um, who were threatening the established order. So Churchill said, you know, look at uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, it's uh, many of the Bolsheviks, many of the principal Bolsheviks were Jews. Um, and he talked about Jewish radicals and Jewish agitators. And he said, you know, there are two kinds of Jews in the world. There are the good Jews and the bad Jews. And the good Jews are the ones who want to go to Palestine and build a uh, Jewish state there. And the bad Jews are the international Jews, these communists and socialists and agitators who are threatening the established order. Well, that was a view that kind of resonated with Herzl, uh, but is also a view that resonated with other figures in the political right, uh, Hitler, for example. Yes, yes. You know, you make it so very clear in the introductory chapters that we're looking at a fundamentally right-wing, reactionary, even anti-enlightenment project when we talk about Zionism, a Zionist state. It's this fundamentally pessimistic and negative project where there's this belief that Jewish people cannot coexist in Europe. And, and this is a, a view shared by the right-wing Zionists that they should go somewhere else. And you have the parallel in the people running European countries who say, oh, look, I think Jews are agitators and perhaps we should deport them. And and someone comes along like Herzl who says, hey, you know, I, <laughs> I can help you out. Let's, let's work together. And it goes against this other vision of society that you pointed out based on universalism, equality, socialism. People can work together, different ethnicities, different religions. They can coexist, cohabitate. Um, that vision is being put aside when we're talking about uh, Zionist and empires coming together to create a project in the Middle East. And your book is full of these quotes, quotes from people associated with the Israeli state, the Israeli military, the British state, the U.S. state, where it keeps coming up over and over again, as you said. There's these continuing justifications. Uh, Israelis say, you need us. You need these people in the Middle East to help you out. We have this relationship. You need someone loyal in there. And you have heads of state and statesmen saying the same thing. There's echoes of Lucerto, Domenico Lucerto, throughout your whole book, because Lucerto, of course, talked about how liberalism was intertwined with colonialism and racist ideas about people, pessimistic ideas, ideas about the Orient, ideas about the Arab world. And this negative view of Arabs is also something shared um, by the early Zionists and Zionism and the people running European empires. And so they all agreed that Arabs were simply people to be displaced in order to create a different vision for the Middle East. So, you know, that's it's all in there, and it, it's made very clear. It was, a, it was a colonial war against the indigenous population that created Israel. Uh, you call them settler-native wars, I think. Uh -huh. uh, 
And there's like four or five different, you know, many different of the first one, of course, was the, the creation of Israel itself. It's my understanding that during the war to create Israel, the Nakba and the, the subsequent defeat of any attempt to stop that, the Arabs had already been disarmed and and divided by the British and the French and the other colonialists. Not completely disarmed, but uh, I mean, they had been rendered unable to fight effectively. Isn't that the case? Yeah, I mean, they were quite weak. And uh, the others have pointed out that why did, uh, well, there are various reasons why um, nationalist Jews wanted to establish a Jewish state in the, in the Middle East. But one of them was that that's where you could establish a state because the natives were so weak. You couldn't do it in France, for example, <laughs> or, or the United States or anywhere in Europe, because if you wanted to displace people by force, you wouldn't be able to do so. They're too strong. Uh, so you pick on someone who's weak and defenseless, and that's the only reason why uh, the nationalist Jews were able to prevail. Yes, it was a famous quote that you actually referred to as well in the book, where it was asked, how did five... Arab armies fail to defeat Israel at first? And someone answered, it's because there were five Arab armies, five different non-united disparate Arab armies. And that situation has continued, and that goes to your other major theme. But before I say that, um, of course, for those just tuning in, I'm speaking with Stephen Gowans, Ottawa-based political commentator and writer, and we're talking about his latest book. It's called Israel, a beachhead in the Middle East. And that should give a pretty good indication of what the book is about. The, the subheading is From European Colony to U.S. Power Projection Platform. And we were kind of covering that, that European colony aspect there. Um, you're going to be talking about this book on Monday in Hamilton. That's going to be at 7 o'clock p.m. at the New Vision United Church, Monday at 7. Uh, for people who need more information about that, they can go to hcsw.ca. There's going to be a little blurb up there about the book and information about the, the event. But, Stephen, I was saying earlier that, you know, there were, there's at least two major themes that occur and reoccur and reoccur throughout the book. And um, one of those, the second one for me, was that um, the United States and the other empires really worked hard to keep the Arab people divided. And they played upon many divisions that already existed, sectarian or religious divisions, and uh, their geographical divisions, and other divisions, especially through the creation of all these artificial states and some very odd measures that were done uh, to do that. So this was done because of imperial interests. So the divisions occurred because it was in the interests of empire. So when you're talking about imperialism, when the U.S. and Britain and France are involved in the Middle East, dividing it up and staying there and playing one power against another, what is the motive for doing that, especially with the U.S. and its very long involvement there? When you're saying U.S. imperialism, what are these interests that you're referring to? Mm. Um, well, when we talk about imperialism, the broadest sense, I mean, you could define imperialism as the process of establishing empires, of dominating other countries politically, culturally, and economically. But more specifically, it's the process of annexing the economies of other countries in order to exploit their land and their labor and their markets and resources. Uh, the United States government recognized early on that the Middle East was, as they called it, um, uh, stupendous, a cornucopia of wealth and strategic asset, um, one that 
uh, would confer numerous advantages on U.S. the United States government, but principally U.S. investors in corporate America if the United States could dominate it, which is what they have done. And so, I mean, Britain and France, they had, I mean, they're all involved in, in the Middle East and carving it up. They had different reasons for doing so. Uh, but once oil was um, discovered, oil became very important. And I don't think anyone disputes the fact that oil is one of the principal attractions of the Middle East to countries like the United States. Controlling the oil not only uh, for the profit-making potential, uh, selling arms to essentially imposed leaders throughout the Middle East because, I mean, there are a number of Arab countries, um, most of which are uh, run by imposed leaders. They've been imposed either by the British uh, or the French uh, or by the United States. They're certainly protected by the United States. They're unacceptable to their populations, but they preside over in many cases, what are simply uh, just borders surrounding oil wells. And they buy U.S. arms, and they recycle their oil profits through U.S. banks. So this is all of great advantage to corporate America. Uh, and that is essentially, the, I mean, the impetus for the U.S. domination of the Middle East. They need to dominate the vast resources of the Middle East and also to dominate the the land and sea routes um, through which or by through which uh, oil and, and uh, other petroleum resources are sent to market. Uh, by dominating the Middle East, uh, the United States is also able to dominate other countries which depend on Middle East petroleum resources like Japan and China and Western Europe in particular, countries that don't have their own sources of oil and depend on oil coming from the Middle East. The United States um, is not particularly dependent upon Middle East oil and never has been, and it's even less today. It's become uh, what, the number one producer of oil in the world, and it's always been a major producer of oil in the world. But dominating Middle East oil resources has given it power over uh, Western Europe and Japan uh, countries or areas that could challenge uh, U.S. control of the world um, uh, and have at times challenged the United States in the Second World War. Um, so this, uh, as I said at the outset of this answer, I mean, this, uh, the Middle East and access to Middle East oil is a great strategic prize and a stupendous source of profits. And I'm glad you mentioned that last part because you make the specific point in the book that the United States does not itself necessarily need that Middle Eastern oil for domestic consumption, but it does want to sit on that oil in order to control the development of other societies, Europe, uh, Japan, China. This is very important uh, because it plays out today, of course. Uh, it, it's been a constant factor, and you've mentioned some revealing statements by U.S. officials in that context in the book. So they talk about the necessity to control oil in order to dominate others, even though they pretend for domestic consumption that it was a strategic U.S. interest 
to have that oil as if they needed it for their own consumption. And, and some of these theories were tested during the oil embargo, which you also talked about in the book. Um, so it, it was necessary to keep the Arabs divided clearly for anyone trying to pull off something like this. And you give examples of how Israel made itself useful to the Americans. They were not necessarily seen as the prime state, the prime U.S. ally in the Middle East at first, say after the 1940s into the 50s. It wasn't necessarily that Israel was seen as the most valuable player for America. But you have things come along like Nasser in Egypt. Uh, you give you you devote two whole chapters to Nasser's Egypt in the book, uh, first talking about what it was and then how Israel... Um, countered that, challenged that. And this is something that's not well understood today, according to you. So Nasser had a very different vision for the Middle East than what the Americans were imposing. And the Americans, the British, the French at first had some real difficulties with them. Israel kind of proved itself useful to the empires there. Can you tell us, you know, how did Israel make itself useful and, and distinct in this context? Yeah, I should say that you pointed out that I have two chapters about Nasser. And so some people might say, why is there so much about this guy Nasser? Um, isn't this old? And there's a reason I included a lot about Nasser. And it has a lot to do with Syria, Syria since 2011, because a lot of people seem to think that Syria from 2011 onward represents some kind of abrupt break from history that something new happened in 2011 because we talk about the Arab Spring. But what was happening in Syria post-2011 was happening prior to 2011 as well, for decades. And all of this was anticipated in Egypt because the same thing happened in Egypt before it happened in Syria. And that is a struggle between Arab nationalism on the one hand and Islamism on the other, with the Islamists allying with European powers and with Israel becoming involved in kind of this um, multiple alliance against Arab nationalism, a multiple alliance involving uh, imperialist powers, involving Islamists, uh, and um, imperialist powers and the Islamists. Well, what you Israel. do in the book, I mean, it is, you get very specific. And when you talk about the United States allying with specific local groups, you refer to the examples in Egypt, in Syria, in Lebanon. You talk about the U.S. and Israel uh, making alliances with the Christian Phalangus militias, which Israel supported in the invasion of Lebanon. You talk about how the imperialist, you know, created the constitution uh, of certain countries to be very sectarian so that some people would be Christians in charge of this ministry. They would appoint a Jewish person in this ministry. They'd appoint, uh, you know, Sunni Shia. They, it, they, they did this on purpose to keep countries divided, and they brought in Israel to exacerbate these divisions and help certain factions. As you point out, Israel is working with some of these Muslim Brotherhood factions and Al-Qaeda factions in the case of Syria. They worked with some of these elements of political Islam um, in other countries, in Egypt and elsewhere, in order to put down this great Arab nationalism that you spend many chapters discussing. Yeah, and, and Nasser is uh, really interesting because uh, Nasser, would be said, or some have argued, Nasser is the most popular Arab since Muhammad. 
but we wouldn't know that today because no one talks about him. They also talk about him as the most popular failure in history. The man was immensely popular, and his name became an eponym for Arab nationalism. He was an inspiration throughout the Third World because he seemed to take on the imperialists. He took on the British and the French and the Americans and the Israelis. And he talked about building a pan-Arab state, bringing together the Arabs who had been divided uh, through this divide-and-rule policy pursued by the French and the British in in the United States, building this great kind of united Arab state, which would go from the Atlantic Ocean to the Persian Gulf and would contain 400 million Arabs um, and the vast resources of that territory. And if they could accomplish that goal, they would become a threat to the United States and to other imperialist powers. And they'd certainly become a threat to Israel. Israel could not survive as this Jewish settler state in the midst of a huge pan-Arab superstate. So Nasser uh, was a great threat to imperialist powers, to Syria, uh, to not Syria, to Israel. And Israel eventually was the country that destroyed Nasser. They tried it twice. They tried it in the 1956 in the so-called tripartite aggression, but they finally managed in the Six-Day War in 1967 to destroy him. Yes. And, you know, by the way, what you just said um, about Israel, you know, keeping down these countries, keeping down Arab nationalism and the threat posed by Arab unity, the threat to profit, the threat to money-making by the West, reminded me of the first theme I was talking about, about the, the marriage of right-wing political Zionism and right-wing imperialism, you have a continuing situation where what's good for empire is good for Israel, and what's, what's bad for colonialism is bad for Israel. So if Arabs are uniting under Nasser or other groups, if South African apartheid is becoming weaker, if, if these kind of settler colonialist regimes are being rolled back in the post-war period, in the 70s, whatever, the 80s, that's bad. That turned out to be bad news for Israel, and you made that explicit argument. So you have this right-wing colonial marriage, this alliance, and definitely what's bad for colonialism in the world generally negatively impacts Israel and vice versa. There, there is this, this dialectic in play. So I'd say most of your book is about the development of Arab nationalism and challenges to empire domestically within the broader Middle East. You talk about Iran uh, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Egypt, and they all get their own special treatment and Israel's intervention in each of those cases. It's, it's just incredible to learn about all these movements of resistance and how they were undermined. Um, fascinating. Anyone who's a Palestine solidarity activist should own and read this book. There's, there's really no excuse not to. Uh, before we go, I just want to, in terms of those themes I was referring to, I noticed that within your book, that you might not find elsewhere, there is this treatment of class, you know, socioeconomic class. Uh, you make a number of references to imperial class relationships. Uh, among the Jewish population in Palestine before the Nakba, you know, there were these Jewish socialists, working class people, and they saw themselves as having a common class interest with Arab workers against the foreign empire, the British or whomever, and that they should be working with Arabs in various capacities. But um, you're also likely to find a different view that Jewish workers should collaborate with foreign imperial ruling classes in Britain, which we got with Zionism. So, you know, 
even in the case of Nasser, right? His his friends, his Arab nationalist friends, were upset about the clash relationships that existed in Egypt, uh, the kind of things the British fostered. So what was that that was upsetting the Arab nationalists? What was the class relationship? The class relationships that Britain was fostering in Egypt. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be a major impetus for having their own alternative program. It seemed that Nasser was upset about feudal class relations being upheld. His own program comes from the middle class. It comes from officers in the military. You end up with very different results in terms of political governance and ideology, I suppose. That's another angle that people should think about when they read the book. You have a discussion of class, and when you talk about empire, it's there. It's, it's in the foreground, it's in the background, it's not something that disappears. So I was pleased to see these elements coming up again and again in the book. I guess if people want to know more about it, they'll have to catch you at the event itself in Hamilton. You will be taking questions, right? Yes, I would. Okay, so you can get an autograph of the book, you can ask Stephen about this, because this is a broad tapestry, and Stephen covers decades and decades of history, he covers the whole colonial aspect that goes back centuries, and it's covering specific cases in a multitude of countries and how it relates to the situation today that you see unfolding in Lebanon, that you see unfolding in Syria, the alliances and shifts. It's all very fascinating, and it's going to be at 7 o'clock p.m. on Monday, October 28th, at the New Vision United Church in Hamilton. It's free admission. You can come. You can pick up a book. You can ask Stephen about it. You can uh, get it autographed. Like I said, I really encourage everyone to do this. Um, This is a political economic treatment of Israeli colonization of the Middle East and its relationship with empire broadly. And we don't have enough of that. We're lucky that we have a book that puts it all together so nicely. So, Stephen, thanks so much for being on the program with us today. Thank you for having me, Brendan.